I was missing a part of my shin bone, about a two and a half to three inch gap. And at that time, dad was trying to get insurance coverage and now it was labeled as a pre-existing condition and he couldn't get any coverage for this. We don't often talk about what it's like to be a child of a founder or of an entrepreneur or of a business owner. You want your child to be healthy and to be okay, but along the way, uh, they lost their house. They had cars repossessed. They went all in to prioritize me uh, and my health and their child. And the good news to this story is today on the show, I'm happy to have Marty Kaiser, CEO of IVBH Studio. IVBH is a global leader in liquid biopsy, specializing in early detection precision diagnostics. In the path of failing to success in entrepreneurship, you actually have an interesting perspective. Growing up, seeing your father go through a major failure, what did you end up taking away from that experience? Yeah, thanks, Chad. Happy to be here um, and happy to share this fairly personal story. As you mentioned, I grew up in as the child of a self-employed business owner. My father started an asphalt paving business 40 plus years ago. And interestingly, I've, I was actually the cause of the failure. And so when I was born in the late 80s, my dad at the time was, was carrying a really expensive insurance policy. As a self-employed person, he had a Blue Cross Blue Shield policy. He was paying about $1,000 a month premium back in the 80s. That was a fortune. And so when I was born and everything seemingly was okay with me, he very shortly after my birth dropped the insurance policy in search for a more affordable plan. And uh, a few months later, started to notice that something seemed a little off with the shape of my right leg. And so after rounds of x-rays and doctor's appointments, I was actually diagnosed with something called congenital pseudarthrosis of the tibia, which basically meant that I was missing a part of my shin bone, about a two and a half to three inch gap in my shin bone. And, and at that time, dad was trying to get insurance coverage and now it was labeled as a pre-existing condition and he couldn't get any coverage for this. The scary part about that condition is that it, it's not genetic. It's really just a rare sort of freak thing. But even to this day, after almost 40 years, even to this day, the prognosis for that condition is amputation below the knee. And so this was a really scary diagnosis for my parents to receive. And so they started exploring every and all option under the sun for alternative treatments, alternative surgeries, and even you know, the most successful procedures had really severe consequences. And if it worked, I was very likely going to walk with a gimpy, draggy foot, um, a draggy leg, if you want to call it that. If I didn't have the draggy leg, I was very likely to have stunted growth and I would likely have to wear you know, a platform shoe to level my my leg out. And if all of that didn't happen at best case scenario, I would have a really skinny leg with no muscle mass whatsoever. And all of these things obviously were better than amputation below the knee. And so they took that shot. They took that bet. But the scary part is it was really expensive. And to go through that procedure and, and to go through everything was really hard on my family. Obviously, you're scared for your child. You want your child to be healthy and to be okay. But along the way, uh, they lost their house. They, they had cars repossessed, um, everything. They literally went all in to prioritize me uh, and my health and, and you know, their child. And the good news to this story is that I ended up going through a procedure by it at Columbia Presbyterian in New York City by a surgeon who had practiced this really rare surg surgical procedure for this particular condition. And he had only done it a couple of times prior to me. And I was actually the first and the youngest child to ever successfully undergo this procedure. Not only did it work and I did not lose my leg, but my leg is completely asymmetrical, completely symmetrical with my left leg. 
no stunted growth, full muscle mass. It is a true miracle and a true success. And I carry that story on a little bit further, obviously just this immense gratitude for what my parents sacrificed and how difficult and traumatic and, and harsh, hard that must have been for them uh, as a couple and as a young and growing family. But I went on to, to do some pretty incredible things. And, and my dad turned the corner, brought his business back, went on to build a, a, an incredibly successful business, was able to give us a great quality of life through our teen years, supported us all the way through college. Financially, we, all three of my all three of us, my two sisters and myself, were able to graduate debt-free. Everything turned the corner. Everything worked out the way it was supposed to, despite that really tough and difficult traumatic experience. And interestingly for me, as far as overcoming some of those obstacles, I had to wear a brace on my leg until I was 10 or 11 years old. And that's right around the time as a young boy where everyone's starting to play Little League and they're playing baseball and football and lacrosse. And my parents refused to let me play anything. Even though I was diagnosed, I was in the clear after what they had gone through. They didn't want to risk that I would get injured. And so I never played any sports. And I always felt a little bit of an outcast because of that, because all my friends were actively involved in athletics. And so in, in high school, I decided I needed to build up some experience and some extracurricular sort of resume builders. And I decided to go into the drama program. And so I ended up becoming voted class actor in my graduating class. And that experience taught me to stand on stage and to present in front of people and to do what for most people is a really difficult thing. And it trained me for that. And I ultimately ended up going on to become a sales professional in finance. I was on Wall Street for 13 years, had a tremendously successful career raising capital for various investment strategies. And I don't think that career would have been as successful had I not had that experience grooming to be able to get in front of people and tell stories and be able to, you know, communicate clearly in a public setting. And so you, know, you start to think of the silver linings of it all. And in the harshest, darkest moments when my parents were losing everything, to be able to now look into the future and glimpse into the future to see how it all worked out and to see how it was all worth it and to see how it actually ended up shaping me as an entrepreneur now, having founded IVBH five years ago. And I can tell you not with none of that going in a straight line, having plenty of twists and turns and surprises along the way, being able to have had that front row seat at such a young age to what failure looks like, but to what the success and what the growth looks like on the other side has really shaped me and given me this solid foundation to be able to navigate all the perils and all the twists and all the turns of being a founder and an entrepreneur. And I think, yeah, I wanted to share that because. So many times we talk about the founder, we talk about the founder being, we talk about their success. We do talk about their failure, but we don't often talk about what it's like to be a child of a founder or of an entrepreneur or of a business owner. And as a father of three daughters, I do think about it all the time. I think about what they're seeing and they, and whether they are aware of the sacrifices and everything that goes into this. I think they are. And I know that as a child, I very much was, and it shaped me too. And as hard as it might seem, it actually, you're doing a great service to, to your young ones by giving them that front row seat. It's an amazing story and how your family was able to pull out of that and push forward and not let that debt, that financial debt weigh on everybody and push through and have success in it. And that's the grit. That's the optimism. That's the pushing forward that's required to yeah. entrepreneur. And it's the ability to find, to, to find the silver lining in every one of those perils and every one of those tribulations. And so I, somebody asked me, have you failed? And I can list a dozen things that didn't go the way I wanted them to go, but I don't 
necessarily view that as failure. I just view it as part of the journey. And I view it as an opportunity to learn and to grow. And I guess technically I've had lots of failures, but they don't feel that way because it's a mindset shift. I really don't think of it that way. It's just part of, it's just part of that journey. It's looking at them as lessons and what can I take away from this thing that did not work? Yeah, absolutely. So now you're big in the medical tech space. So can you share the different products that you are producing right now? Yeah, um, IVBH is... Uh, the most, uh, aside from my, being a husband and a father, which are the most special things in the world, IVBH is the thing I'm, I'm certainly most proud of professionally. And it's, it was always meant to be a legacy. Um, my name is Martin James Kaiser III, and I only have daughters. So there is no path for a Martin James Kaiser IV. And so when I founded IVBH, the IV was meant to stand for the fourth and to be the legacy to do good and to leave a meaningful impact on society for generations to come. And so it was always a very personal business and it's an early detection company. We are developing blood tests that detect disease at the earliest stages. And I think what makes us a bit unique is we're not, we're not just trying to unlock the borrowed time that exists between a stage three and a stage four diagnosis, but we know there's value there. Obviously an extra three or six months of survival was the difference of meeting your grandchild for the first time or seeing your daughter get married. And so there's, there's beauty in that. But in, and it's not just for us about the hope that exists between stages one and two. And we know what that hope is. The difference between stage one or two and stage four is the difference between living or dying. What we really focus on, the real driving mission of IVBH is actually unlocking the quality of life preservation that exists at stage zero. And stage zero is a real thing. The stage zero in breast cancer is referred to as DCIS. And the difference between a stage one and a stage zero breast cancer patient is the, the difference between uh, full removal of her breasts or a simple lump, lumpectomy. It's the difference between multiple rounds of chemo and no chemo, multiple rounds of radiation and minimal, if any, radiation, hair loss versus no hair loss. It is quite literally the difference of preserving that woman's identity as closely to the person she was the day before that diagnosis. And so if we can unlock that quality of life preservation at stage zero, we've done our job. We've fulfilled our mission. I can tell you that I'm extremely proud of the product pipeline that we've been able to develop. I'm proud of the science. I'm proud of the data. I'm proud of the, the, the go-to-market strategy. We have three of we're targeting three of the most biologically challenging health areas with some of the greatest unmet needs in the world in breast cancer, lung cancer, and liver disease. And, and I'm actually really debuting this for the first time that we just got word from our molecular team and our data science team just this week that our early detection breast test has passed the finish line of our scientific validation. And that test is locked and loaded and ready to be deployed into our clinical trial. And so as it stands, we're targeting right now to have the world's first early detection stage one blood test for breast cancer on the market, ready to go in probably the second half of next year, second half of 2024. And so to see that science, to see that data, not only is it really exciting for the business, especially because we're seeing all the same data trends in lung cancer and liver disease right behind it, but to really see it, it it's been very impactful for me. It's been a really exciting week an emotional week because it's been a three-year journey from end to get that product to where it is today. 
And when I see all the statistics and I see all the, the dots on the charts and all the graphs and the box plots, all I see are lives. I see human lives on the other side of it. I see hope. I see borrowed time. I see quality of life preservation. And it's a really exciting time to be leading this company right now. Yeah, that's a game-changing test right there. It'll create the next century's worth of change for breast cancer and the way that disease is managed. The mammography, which we don't intend to displace the mammography. In fact, we will very likely just complement and enhance it in a, in a more meaningful way. But the mammogram was invented in 1913. It's over 120 years old. And that's a product, that's a, a testing platform that is still to this day, the gold standard for initial screening. Just imagine what a, a highly accurate, non-minimally invasive blood test will do with it just, it's going to change everything. You don't even necessarily come from a scientific background, but you have a mission. You have a major yeah. mission here. Yeah, no scientific background. What's cool about the business, when my, I was actually doing kind of an evaluation of the team. It's so much of the success we've had is because we have such an outsider's perspective on this. We didn't come from the industry. So, well, my, my business partner did, but she was on the business side. But here's one of the things that sort of struck me the other day. The healthcare field has some really brilliant academic minds. These are deep thinkers. They also have some really savvy business people, really good deal makers, a visionary, disruptive kind of visionary business people. But the problem I find in our industry is that most of the academic minds get too caught up in the science. They get too caught up in the weeds and they fail to appreciate how you can turn it into a scalable product. The business people are sometimes too visionary and too disruptive. And they don't fully understand how important the science is and how important that science is to integrate into existing standards of care and care pathways. So you get this divide. And one of the things that I feel like is so unique about IVBH and my team and my business partner is that my business partner is a trained scientist, but she spent 20 years of her career on the commercial business side of things. And I spent my prior career in business, finance, economics, but I have a deep passion for the science. I and I think because we have science people that think like business people and business people that think like science people, put them in a really creative and imaginative space and place like IVBH where, where we're free to challenge norms and free to question things and, and free to think and wonder and imagine. And it's, I think that's a big part of what makes this all, makes this all so special. Yeah, that is a good mix. Now, something like this to develop is very capital intensive. So. Did you, since you have that capital background, did you structure something interesting around raising capital to do this? Yeah, great question. Generally in my industry, this is a very capital intensive endeavor, but from the very beginning, I, I conceived of this platform and this model and the process to prioritize capital efficiency, to prioritize, actually to prioritize speed, capital efficiency and risk mitigation. But the capital efficiency was always meant to be a really important driving factor, not because I just didn't want to raise a lot of money. It wasn't because I was lazy, but actually keeping that cost down was very deliberate. Uh, it's intentional because in my field, uh, whether you're looking at diagnostics or therapeutics, just generally things can take about a decade to bring to market and they can cost a billion dollars or more. And most of the time they fail, they fail more often than they succeed. And so you've got a long lead time, a big sort of capital intensive budget requirement, and you have a high rate of failure. And one of the things that, that really bothered me about that is that the one in 10 products that do make it across the finish line, they have to be priced to reflect and to account for all of the time and the cost and the risk that it took to get there. 
And so what happens is you, you might, these companies catch lightning in a bottle and they make it and they succeed. They've got to price the product at a level to actually compensate for all of that time, costs, and risk and to give them a, a real path to profitability. And all of that cost gets passed down to the patient and they end up limiting their own social and financial impact because they limit the adoption rate because the product is priced unaffordably, unattainably, and then they just never actually fulfill their underlying mission. And for me, the, from day one, keeping that cost and that capital efficiency and preserving that was really important from end to end so that we can actually take the product and once it gets to market, price it at a reasonable, affordable price rate and really maximize the social and financial impact that we set out to unlock with the product. And so I will tell you, we've raised several million dollars, but we've raised on the equivalent of the products we have, the assets we have, the stage we're at, we've, we've done this in less than 1% of the capital that, that the industry would have actually required. But my capital raising background absolutely helped. As a founder, as a startup, as an entrepreneur, your number one job is selling and, and raising capital and making sure that you have what you need to fulfill the mission. And so having that background was really important. It's helped me successfully raise the money that we've needed up to this point, no question. And so, yeah, it's, it, it, we've gotten really lucky to get where we are without needing a billion dollars, let's put it that way. Yeah, to produce a product like this with only a, several million raised, it's, that's unheard of. It is unheard of, but I think you're going to start to hear more of it. And I think you're going to have to start to hear more of it because healthcare is the only industry left in the world where technology has not compressed time, cost, risk, and improved outcomes. Everything you look at or do or buy or service that's powered by some sort of technology has made things faster and cheaper and better, or however you want to qualify better. But but healthcare hasn't until we did it. And so a big part of our capital efficiency really comes down to two things. One is the, the very unique and proprietary way that we use big data and AI. And we use AI from, our dis from the riskiest stages of discovery. And we have those tools built out all the way through to the commercialization side of things so that there's really this uh, highly efficient, highly, highly advanced AI platform that's powering this from end to end. Um, but the second thing we do is leverage partnerships. And we live in an abundant age. We live in a collaborative age. And so if you just look around, there's plenty of people and partners that have the expertise, the experience, and the infrastructure already established. And if you can enter into creative partnerships, whether that's an equity arrangement or a revenue share arrangement or you know a, a, um, a collaborative sort of long-term fee-for-service contract agreement, you can plug into all the expertise and all the infrastructure you need to go from end to end and to be successful without having to reinvent the wheel, without having to build it all from scratch and own the whole entire thing in-house. You don't need to be vertically integrated anymore to be successful. That was vertical integration was key to the industrial revolution, but this new age of innovation, this new revolution is all about decentralization. It's all about partnerships. It's all about collaboration and scalability. And so we very successfully and intentionally built that into our business model from day one. And so you know, we can go from those riskiest stages of biomarker discovery to this development of our own clinical assay with a small team on a minimal budget. And again, back to my point, that's never going to change at IVBH because as long as we can preserve that, we end up bringing best in class products to market at the most affordable and most scalable price point. And that's what this is all about for us. And I, I think anybody who's not getting on that wagon in healthcare is going to be left behind.
If any of our listeners wanted to reach out about a collaboration or learn more, how could they do so? They could fill out the information on the contact us form of our website. It's super easy. IVBH.studio. IV is in Victor, B is in boy, H is in Harry. Studio. Find the contact form. Just put in your first name, last name, email address. That automatically comes to us with whatever message you send. And I'm on, I'm copied on all of that as well as part of our team. And so feel free to send that along. Feel free to uh, reach out on LinkedIn, just Marty Kaiser. I've got a, a fairly active presence on LinkedIn and always looking for collaboration in terms, whether it be investment strategic partnerships, scientific advisors, business advisors, or even just members of our community, patients, people who say, I've experienced this, here's a problem and here's a gap in the continuum. Can you help address it? We're always looking for those solutions. Today, IVBH is an early detection company with three of the most exciting liquid biopsy programs in development. But tomorrow, our goal is to become the next the next technology-enabled company to forever transform the world. And we really would love to see IVBH evolve from an early detection company to an early everything company and be able to actually start to illuminate such deep scientific insights about drivers of disease where we could start predicting disease earlier, detecting it earlier, and treating it earlier, and actually compress that entire continuum. So disease is just part of an everyday life, and things like cancer just become a common cold, predict it, detect it, treat it, move on with your life and live your life and preserve that quality of life uh, for everybody that we touch. So that's the vision. Uh, it's a bold vision. We're very focused on where we are today. Um, we're very proud of where we are today, but there's so much more good to be done. And in that spirit of collaboration, we welcome any anybody to reach out, regardless of your background, regardless of your pedigree, regardless of your socioeconomic status. We're all human. We're all one world. And this is a human company and it always will be. That's a world I want to live in. Thank you, Marty, for coming on the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Feelings of Success. Make sure to smash that subscribe button. I'm your host, Chad Kalecki, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.